Welcome back to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm here for the second installment of my interview with Amanda Grow, Healing Body and Mind. Amanda went through something that not very many women hopefully have to go through. We're dealing with maternal mortality rates, and she is a wife and a mother of four children, one daughter and three sons. And as she was giving birth to her last son, she experienced an extremely rare complication of childbirth known as the amniotic fluid embolism. She lost so much blood that her rapid blood transfusion nearly drained the hospital's blood supply. It was just going in and out of her as quick as they could get it in. It left her in a medically induced coma for a week. It caused her body to swell and bruise. She went from 150 pounds to 300 pounds. We're tuning in to last week's episode for the first part of her story, but today we're going to continue on and see how that story ends. And to be real honest with you, it doesn't really end. And that's one of the things that's important about this story is the acceptance of the healing of the body and the mind and the process that that takes and the allowing that's involved. So here's the rest of the story. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. You know, you said at one point in your writings, you said a crisis or trauma is not just one chapter in your life. It is a deep canyon that affects everything going forward from that point. Tell me a little bit about that, because it sounds like you, you know, there were a lot of changes. How many of those mental and emotional changes you said you're not able to do as much now as you could before? What does all of that look like? Well, I've gone through different stages of healing, almost different seasons of healing, and when I, I spent about three weeks in the hospital, and then when I came home from the hospital, it was like the honeymoon phase, and I was just so happy to be alive. And like everything was magical, everything was beautiful, like everything was, even though like there was still some, you know, there was still physical pain and stuff, but I was just in this mental state of like euphoria that I didn't even really think it through that much. It was just so manageable and I was just so happy to be alive. And then like kind of some reality sets in. I just remember like kind of the everything that you used to do feels kind of meaningless for a while against the backdrop of life and death. And so I remember like having a hard time just like trying to do the day-to-day things partially because, you know, there's extremely limited energy and physical functioning when you're you know, recovering from something like that. And I had an open wound for 110 days. So that's how long it took that wound to heal. Wow. How long did it take before the swelling went down where you went from the 300 pounds to <laughs> regular weight? It's a fantastic weight loss program. I dropped from 300 pounds down to 150 pounds, but I wouldn't recommend it. I really wouldn't recommend that weight loss one. But by the time I left the hospital, I want to say I was down to about 180 pounds. And just like it kind of just swelling reduced as I became healthier and as time passed. Wow. And well, that had to be hard just for 
getting around and yeah. it's like you could move. And- I know everything felt heavy. My arms felt heavy. My legs felt heavy. And I mean, I had to fully regain in the hospital through physical therapy, all kinds of things. Like you don't even think about swallowing as being a skill, but after you've been intubated, you have to learn how to swallow again mm. and you have to do speech therapy and physical therapy, occupational therapy. And I am lucky. They say if you're young and healthy, when you hit a crisis like this, that your bounce back is going to be so much more manageable. Like you, it's not going to be as long of a road as if, you know, it was a slow decline. For me, it was really fast trauma and the recovery didn't take. I was able to walk again within, you know, a week. Let's see, aftershock trauma. I was walking with a walker for a couple of days and then eventually I could walk, but it it like depleted my energy. I remember one time, like one of the last days of the hospital to prove to myself, I wanted to walk down to the NICU to see the baby. So, you know, with my, I had like my husband and my mom's arms and I, but I walked down myself. But by the time I got down there, I collapsed in the chair and fell asleep and didn't even hold the baby because I was so tired. So it was like, okay, learn how to manage your energy in a smarter way. Such a long process. And the thing about those processes is that you have no idea what that's going to be. You know, when did the mental and the the trauma start to hit it? Well, after the honeymoon phase, I kind of had hit a good spot where I was like, okay, I really think I have my physical strength back now too. And so I'm you know, I'm healed. It's been five or six months and I, I'm back. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And I, I went on a hike on the six month mark. I hiked like seven miles and said like, you know, I am victorious. Yeah. And that was the end of it. And that I could close that chapter. But, you know, like I mentioned, a trauma is not just one event that you can survive and then tie a bow on it and be done with it forever. It affects everything going forward. And so I want to say about about November, I started to feel kind of emotionally numb, which was strange. It, it kind of coincided with the holidays starting to come. I think maybe that expectation on myself that I was like, oh, this is the best time of the year and you've just survived and this should be like the most joyous holiday season you've ever had. But I just felt numb. I didn't feel kind of happiness or sadness. I was just kind of going through the motions and surviving. And that started to get really frustrating. And then every Christmas tradition started to feel really annoying to me because I was like, I guess part of it is like some of this stuff feels really meaningless and dumb and frivolous. And since I wasn't feeling anything, it just kind of escalated those thoughts. Sure. That's actually, actually kind of interesting to, as a perspective shift of what has meaning and what doesn't, and sort of a nice time to purge out stuff. <laughs> You're like, this is Isn't really that true. <laughs> kind of a purging of like, you know what? I don't, we don't <laughs> have to bake sugar cookies every Christmas. Like this doesn't add <laughs> happiness to my life. So it <laughs> was just a kind of, yeah, but the, that, the hard part was I wasn't finding anything that was making me happy. Like even I loved giving gifts. I loved, you know, thinking up the great gifts for my kids and ordering them and thinking through thoughtful things. And like, I dutifully bought some stuff for my kids on Black Friday and had it shipped. But like every other person in my life got a gift card. Like I, did, I put no thought, no effort, no joy. Like I just couldn't find any happiness. And what was that from? What caused I, that? I, it was so strange. And 
I can't really explain it other than it was depression setting in. And they had recommended at the hospital that my husband and I see a PTSD counselor. And it's really funny because we saw the PTSD counselor way before I was experiencing any PTSD stress, any kind of actual stress. But, you know, they, they referred me to somebody and my husband and I both showed up at the hospital and I realized that I had no idea where this person's office was. So we're wandering all around the hospital, which is the site of our trauma, mind you, mm-hmm. to find this PTSD counselor. We finally get there and we go into the office and the, we sit down with this PTSD counselor and he says, so Amanda, tell me about your journey with cancer. And I was like, <laughs> all about cancer? <laughs> and, uh, so it's uh you uh, felt really important <laughs> i i was like i have cancer and he's like oh i'm so sorry wrong patient <laughs> and i was like oh you're the ptsd cancer <laughs> anyway, if this man is listening i you actually really did help me learn some meditation things and it's wonderful <laughs> but it, i just i wasn't ready for ptsd counseling at that point because i hadn't experienced post-traumatic stress yet like i really hadn't mentally or emotionally processed any of this but i had a great story so i told that story about the ptsd counselor about a hundred times do they know because so many people suffer from that you know the people coming home from war and you know all of trauma situation this comes up and i'm i'm asking this question simply because i don't know but do they know what causes that type of what causes the mind and the heart to go into that kind of place of deadness? Is it just from a protective, I don't dare engage? Oh, what is that from? I honestly don't know either, but it trauma is has become fascinating to me. It makes me want to like dive into it and study it and read other people's accounts. But mm-hmm. my therapist said, and I thought this this kind of rang true. I don't know if it's like scientifically proven, but it rang true to me. She said, your body has to heal and you're like, you mentally and emotionally have to feel safe before you can crash. And so for me, it was like, I had to get through the physical recovery first. And it's almost like you get this like adrenaline rush of like, peace and happiness that gets you through the physical recovery in some, I mean, in my case, I guess I can't speak for everyone, but in my case, the mental and emotional crash didn't really happen until I physically recovered. That's fascinating and super interesting from an evolutionary standpoint of we can't handle everything at once, you know, that it's staggered and yet a real and repetitive process. No, because I can't fathom what it would be like to have to face uh, the physical, like it's hard to get out of bed and the mental, it's hard. Like it's mm-hmm. hard to get out of bed. Like if you had both of those, I don't know how you, like that would be terrible. So back to, I'm starting to feel numb and I hit a couple of strange triggers that were so unexpected, but I read this article about a family and the mom had been, had twins that were in the NICU And she was killed by a drunk driver on her way home from visiting her twins. And she had four other children at home. And it's like awful, devastating story. But the article I read was like, it's been a couple of years now. And it was a showing how the family has healed. And the father had remarried to this beautiful person who was like giving the family so much space for the memory of their mother and was so respectful of her memory to the children. And she let, you know, this mother 
who was no longer living be a part of the children's lives. And I, I thought it was so beautiful. And I didn't even fathom at the time that that would be the worst possible thing I could have read because all of a sudden my mind took that and looked at all of my weaknesses, all of the ways that I didn't have as much energy as I used to and all the ways that I just felt like I was falling short as a mom and as a wife and just like in my life in general, I just felt like this downer of a person compared to, you know, the superhero that I used to feel like I was. And all of a sudden, I'm just bombarded by these thoughts of it would be better if you had died. It would have been better for everyone if you had just died then and ripped the bandaid off fast for everyone. Don't and you think that that's the adversary, though, that he's I, just looking for the first opportunity in which to keep pulling you down? I don't know what it was, but it was very real. And I think that because of that numbness, because of the beginnings of kind of mental illness and some imbalanced things, my mind grabbed into, onto that thought and just absolutely became consumed with it. And I was taking caffeine pills to get through the day is kind of how I coped. So I would take two Excedrin in the morning, two Excedrin at noon. And then uh, sometimes I would take another Excedrin in the like kind of early, like later afternoon. And so that I was just functioning because I was like, I have to function. I have four kids. I've got to function. I've got to function. And I would get kind of this caffeine rush and just kind of buzz through the day, but feeling emotionally numb. And then by the end of the day, I would just absolutely emotionally fall apart. And so my husband, after, you know, it'd been about a couple weeks of me just like crying every night. And when I told him, like, we have a really good open relationship. And when I told my husband, like, I have a lot of thoughts about wishing I had died. And I was like, I don't have any plans to die now, but I feel like I wish I had died. And he, at that point, reached out to my post-intensive care team. And first of all, they said that it's really common for the holidays to be a trigger for women who have been through kind of a medical trauma, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, but they also said, this is post-intensive care syndrome. It's the mental, emotional, and sometimes physical crash that happens in a delayed way after someone's been in the ICU. And I am just so fortunate. Like I have the best case scenario of care. Like it, it still baffles me. They said that if I hadn't been at this hospital, I would never have survived physically because no other hospital in the state would have had enough blood on hand to save my life. But I feel the same way about my mental, emotional health too, because I had a place I could go. Most intensive care people have no aftercare. They're just dropped back into life. But we had a lifeline and I reached out to my doctors. My doctor brought me in, had this long conversation with me about how normal this is. She prescribed some medication to just help me kind of get through the, this emotional crash. And also I started seeing a counselor and little by little, as the medication has started to kind of work. And as I felt like I can, I, I love the name of your podcast, Love Your Story. I feel like what therapy has done for me is allowed me to talk through my story and to try to understand I think we as human beings like need our stories to line up we need them to make sense and Absolutely. and so that is what therapy has been for me is a chance for me to sit down with a person whose whole job is to listen to me and help me make sense of my story and and I love that and so I'm in such a better place a couple months later 
I mean, what are we, March? We're, you know, early spring now. And, and my crash really happened around the, the holidays. I'm in such a better spot, but it's because I reached out desperately for help. And I have leaned into every possible type of healing and help that I can find because I want to get better. And I have four kids that while I can't be the perfect do-it-all mom, like I want to be able to at least mentally and emotionally be able to be there for them. Even if I can never physically be what I have the same level of energy, that's probably a good thing. We have much simpler lives now than we did before. We aren't always just like, here, eat this granola bar in the car while we run to the next thing. It's we're home more. It's quiet more. It's uh, it, it has actually been a strange gift to our lives. But if I can't mentally and emotionally be there, that's a huge problem. So I'm leaning into every type of healing I can find. So if you had to name one that, you know, if, if someone, one of the listeners is relating to this and thinking, you know, what were some of those healing processes that worked best for you? Which one would you say? To be honest, I have found that writing is healing to me, but sharing my struggles has been meaningful to me. So I emerged into a strange reality where everyone I've ever known knew that I had a giant crisis. Like it follows me everywhere. Even now, like I can't go to the grocery store without talking about this because everyone knows that I went through this thing. But people don't know that like when they see you reemerge into life, they assume you're back to 100%. And that's my least favorite question of all time. And I used to ask it too, is, oh, are you back to 100%? Never ask that to someone who's gone through something because they feel like they're never going to be back to 100%. And so that's a tender spot. But for me, because I had such a public crisis physically, I started doing some writing and I decided that if people benefited from seeing a physical miracle, seeing what it looks like for someone's body to fall apart and then be healed, that maybe they would also benefit from seeing someone's mind fall apart and find healing too. So the strange thing for me is being vulnerable and sharing the fact that my mind has been plagued with thoughts of wanting to die, that's not something a lot of people want to talk about. But for me, sharing that openly through that Facebook page that my parents created while I was in a coma and has been healing for me because it has being vulnerable brings out vulnerability in other people. And other people have reached out to me and said, I have felt some of those same feelings and this is what helped me. And even if there's no actual, like this is the recipe to get out of it, the fact that you don't feel alone, I think is the biggest piece of recovering from mental illness. I, I mean, with the just tiny taste of it that I've had, you just need to, there's some times when you just can't be comforted. There's nothing anyone can do that can make you feel better. The only thing that slightly helps is knowing that you're not alone. It's so wise and it's so true. You're talking about the power of sharing your story. And especially when it's something traumatic, oftentimes in order to love your story, in order to move forward and find, you know, the things that you learned and, and the positive things that came about because of some traumatic event, you have to share that openly. You have to be able to talk about it. And it does multiple things. Like you said, it helps others, mm -hmm. but it also helps you because you're 
that vulnerability and that openness is connecting. So that's a two-way thing. But then also learning how to say it out loud makes it more real, helps it clarify mm-hmm. your experience for you. It helps you accept things that once they're said verbally is and, and out loud and, and you've seen that it's not the end of the world and that a bunch of judgment doesn't fall on you or, you know, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. There's lots of things about telling your story that help you to love it and you have to love it to be able to move forward. Amen to all of that. It is so true that writing it out, sharing it, speaking it out helps make it meaningful. And if you can make your story meaningful, you can find the purpose to move forward. And so, you know, I had to mourn out. I think you have to grieve when you've had a trauma, even if you didn't like actually lose someone in the process, you still have to grieve the loss of your old life and the loss of things that are outside of your control. The loss of the feeling that you have control over life, that is, mm-hmm. uh, that's something you have to grieve. And when you realize you, you have absolutely no control over life and death, and that's a wake-up call. But telling my story has been healing. And of course, you know, I have found some essential oils I like. I have found meditation. I have found I talk therapy. Talk therapy has been so helpful to me. I feel like the medication has helped. All of these things are so critical. They're just like different pieces to the recovery. And I read somewhere that depression is a disease that thrives in the dark, but shrinks in the light. So for me, sharing and speaking openly about my mental struggles has brought it out into the light and has allowed it to shrink and make it feel manageable, like something that I can handle. So how are you doing now then? It's an ongoing process. Like you said, the things that happen to you change your life. It's not just a season. It's going to affect everything moving forward. And it's that ongoing of traversing the things that you you get to go through. So where are you at in that? Physically, the thing that has lingered is chronic headaches. And I hated the word chronic because I was like, chronic sounds like something that's never going to go away, but I'm owning it now. Just since the coma, my brain gets overstimulated easier. And they say, I had actual mental delay, kind of brain delay at first. I don't feel that as much now, but my head hurts. But thanks to that wonderful doctor, my post-intensive care doctor got me to a doctor of internal medicine who's helping me balance that out and find a solution that can help me cope with kind of my chronic headaches. I just have to be kinder and gentler to myself in terms of like what I can handle because being overstimulated and having too much going on really spirals me into just like headache, misery. Mm. And so I just have to be more careful. If I have a big day where I have a lot going on, I have to follow it with like maybe a more low key day where I'm just around my house and I can have silence. Mm. I used to be someone who like crammed a podcast or an audiobook into every second of my day. Like I just wanted, I was just hungry to hear and learn. And, and I still have that hunger. I think that part of me didn't die, but I need silence more often. And so I just have to choose more wisely, like find more quality podcasts, make sure that what I'm listening to are fantastic podcasts like yours. But I just have to make sure that what I'm going to invest my mental energy in is going to be the thing that will be the most healing to me, that will do the most good for my soul. Because I do long stretches of silence and I need 
Sometimes I need naps. I need eight hours of sleep. I can't live in that crazy world where I thought I, I'm superhuman and I only need five hours of sleep. I need sleep. So if I don't... It kind of sounds like a blessing to slow down and be present. Isn't it strange? But it's very hard to weed your life out on your own without something like this. But I'm so impressed with the people that do. Because for me, I would never have weeded my life out unless I was forced to. I can see now all of the temptations to fill the life back in with busyness, you know, and Mm -hmm. that busyness is like this badge of honor. But I am trying really hard to say no when I can Mm -hmm. and focus on say no and not feel guilty about it. I still have the letters ICU, which gets you out of a lot of things. Like I've recently been in the ICU, so I can't. (laughs) I'm sorry. But you know, I don't know if that's going to last my entire life. Like 15 years ago, I was in the ICU, so no. (laughs) So I can't help you. I'm sorry. I can't help you with the school fundraiser. I'm sorry. But uh, it's really true. Like I kind of feel bad for people that don't have a nice excuse like me. Because you get roped into doing everything. You know what, though? The people who don't, there's a very empowering realization that we all get to implement if we choose. And that is simply that you don't have to explain to somebody when you say no. You have a right to, you know, take stock of your personal situation and even whether you just want to or not and say no without an explanation if it's something you deem that's not going to work for you. And that's just a right that we need to embrace. Isn't that true? My mom always tells me, no is a complete sentence. You don't have to say anything else. You can just say <laughs> no, period. <laughs> I like that. So as we close up here, tell me, do you have one bit of advice or final thought that you would want the listeners to know about your story or that you've learned? I would say that healing is something that needs its own timeline. It can't be rushed. It's not going to fit into our plans. That we have to feel it as it comes. We have to seek help. Seek help and be open to the help that others offer. Somebody told me really soon after this, you know, I got home from the hospital to just feel every emotion as it comes. And I think that freedom has helped me heal in a much better way because I haven't suppressed anything. I have said, I feel, you know, I feel survivor's guilt right now. I feel, I feel depressed right now. Like everything that I felt by allowing myself to feel it, I think it allows me to heal from it or like face it better. So that would be my advice. Feel every emotion as it comes and don't expect that healing will happen on your timeline. Just let it happen on the timeline that it needs to happen. That's great advice, Amanda. Thank you. And thank you so much for sharing your story. You're a great storyteller. Thank you. I love this podcast. I'm excited to listen to more episodes. (laughs) Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks, Lori. Bye. Sometimes in hindsight, I think that we gloss over the real process of climbing out of those dark holes that take us to the brink of our strength. Mental and emotional recovery are significantly harder than a physical recovery. And as we've talked about, they mercifully happen at different times. That physical recovery comes first, and then you get to deal with the mental recovery that comes from any space of trauma. It can be a really long road to becoming whole. And even then, we will most certainly not be the same. One of the things that I loved about Amanda's story is this concept of 
change. When something happens to us, it's not that it happens and then we move on being the same person. Something happens to us and we become a different person because of that experience. Sometimes what we must grieve is the loss of who we were. And this is all a normal part of growth and life and being human. Amanda's story and feelings about her story focus on these concepts of acknowledging the real journey of being willing to seek help, of feeling every emotion as it comes. I love those tips. Your challenge this week is to think about your own journey. Is there a space where you have expected yourself to bounce back more quickly or expected someone else to bounce back and just get back into that normal without a sensitivity to the length and the depth of that process in our lives? Consider what this looks like in your circles and see if there isn't a place where you need to check in and allow and nurture yourself or somebody else. See if there isn't a space where you maybe need to seek for help or a space where you need to allow yourself to feel the raw emotions that come to you instead of editing them. Thank you for being here today for the rest of Amanda's story. And as always, remember the website. You can go there to get your copy of my new book, Life, Living Intentional and Fearless Every Day, The 21 Life Connection Challenges. You can also hop on Amazon to buy that. Just Google the name or my name, Lori Lee. And don't forget on the website, you can also buy Love Your Story t-shirts or listen to all the past podcast episodes, grab links to share those episodes with people you know that might benefit from them. And you can also reach out there to contact me. We'll see you next week on the Love Your Story podcast.